talking about training for hypertrophy. So that's adapting your training program to maximize your chance of gaining as much muscle as possible um, while minimizing fat gain and doing what is the most efficient thing. So without this knowledge, there's quite a lot to take in, but I'm going to go through the theory and the application. And without this, really, you're bumbling in the dark and there's a lot of factors that um, we're kind of relying on chance. Whereas if you can get these down and you fully understand the mechanisms and also how they apply to your training, then that'll mean that you instantly have an edge with gaining muscle and you're not wasting any time in the gym. Also, this goes quite in depth and I guarantee by the end of this presentation, you're going to know more than 99% of personal trainers about the mechanisms and how to apply that for training for hypertrophy. So let's begin. Um, first of all, what is hypertrophy? So you can see here that this is a schematic of a muscle fiber. And what happens when we gain muscle is both of these factors. So the, the fiber itself gets bigger and also the density of the fibers inside too. So large, big picture, hypertrophy is a chain reaction of mechanical and chemical events. And people often talk about sarcoplasmic versus myofibrillar hypertrophy. That's kind of the, the bodybuilder versus the powerlifter um, and why the powerlifter isn't as big as the bodybuilder, but is stronger. Really, these factors are a little bit um, over. The, the, the difference between the two is pretty overblown and you can't really have one without the other. And the reason that bodybuilders are bigger is primarily drugs, which enhance a lot of the mechanisms that we cover here and also the style of training and that they do a lot of the other things right, which we'll cover too. So there are three main mechanisms with muscle hypertrophy and you're gonna need a combination of all three to elicit the best result. Before we get into that though, I'm gonna just quickly go over what is meant by the term sarcoplasmic. Um, so this is hypertrophy where the extracellular matrix, so the amount of fluid outside of the cell, um, that increases in volume. So your ability to store glycogen and water uh, increases. That also means that the bundles here get thicker. What that does is it sows the seeds and it allows you to um, lay down the nutritional environment for those muscle cells to soak up um, more nutrients and therefore grow in the long run. So this is the anatomy of a muscle cell or of a muscle fiber. And I go much more in depth into it in a video called What is Muscle? And I'll link that as well. So I'm not going to go too much into it here. But what we're seeing here is these little filaments are the myofibrils. And what they do is they shorten over the length of a muscle to contract the muscle. So myofibrillar hypertrophy, as you can see here, is where we increase the density, the amount of those fibers within the same cross-sectional area of a muscle. Also, when you lose muscle, you may lose some of the contractile proteins, but what you keep is something called the satellite cells. And what they do is they act as a pool of myonuclei. So they act as kind of potential for future muscle gain. And they have a certain domain around them. So if you were to lose muscle, having trained quite heavily in the past, you'll be able to return to your previously trained level a lot more easily 
than if you were gaining it for the first time. Because what the muscle then has to do, it's it's primed and ready to gain that muscle back. It just needs to um, rebuild some of the actual contractile proteins, um, which can be done relatively quickly compared to if you were trying to gain it and the limiting factor was the satellite cell density or the myonuclei. So in terms of your training, do you need to pick strength or hypertrophy? Lucky for you, if you are doing any of the training blocks that we um, that we write, then they are designed with both in mind. And you're probably doing most of the right stuff anyway, just because of the way that we program stuff. And I don't think, um, again, it's a false dichotomy that people think you need to train for one or the other. And it's very possible to have the best of both worlds. And realistically, if you're training to get stronger, you also want to look stronger as well. So a lot of the um, smaller tweaks that you can do in your training program can make sure that you move forward in both, uh, both sides of that. So hopefully that will make sense so far. We'll move on to the first factor in muscle growth. The three factors are mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. So if we begin with mechanical tension, the theory is simply that by putting a muscle through a loaded stretch and making it produce force, we activate certain pathways, um, which would be primarily these three, MAPK, calcium channel, and mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin. Um, I'm going to quiz you at the end of this, so uh, note this down. Um, is So that they are activated from just simply mechanical loading. And the best way to measure that in practice is volume. You may have seen me harp on about the app Heavyset, probably my favorite iPhone app at the minute. And it's just because it tracks everything that you need to track without being overly bloated. And it gives you a really good measure of your total workout volume per exercise um, over the weeks. And it gives you a graph of how things are moving. Generally, if your volume is going up gradually week on week over a training cycle, then you are creating the right environment for muscle gain. It's not everything that you need because you do need a calorie surplus and the rest of the supporting environment to gain muscle. But if, you, if you're consistently gaining volume, that is the engine of your progress. Another way to, um, so, so make sure that you're tracking your volume essentially. And Heavyset is a great app, although unfortunately you do have to pay for it. I think there's a free version, the free one called Strong, which also does similar things. So check those out and make sure that if you're primarily training for muscle size, then volume is the thing that we need to be tracking. Next, we can focus on high frequency training. And that's really another way to trick yourself into getting some high volume work in. And uh, we have a product called the V Taper Solution, which some of the VIPs are, are testing out as well. And that involves a lot of high frequency body weight work along with some other stuff to keep your shoulders healthy and uh, a kind of complementary weightlifting program as well. But the the driver of the progress there, once again, is volume, but being able to accumulate a lot of it without impacting your recovery too much. So lots of push-ups and press-ups don't um, fatigue you neurally and physically as much as weightlifting or using barbells particularly. So you can accumulate a lot more and actually gain a huge amount of size in quite a short amount of time. With the program behind the V-Taper solution, I kid you not, <laughs> I gained 25 kilos on my bench press in eight weeks. 
and about an inch and a half or two inches on my chest and upper back while remaining the same level of body fat, probably looked a little bit leaner actually. And those results are pretty typical of um, people that go through this program. Now that sounds great uh, in, in theory, but it's a very difficult and unpleasant program. So it's not like it, uh, it comes easy, but it's just to illustrate the point that these gains are possible. That's the um, that's not direct before and after. That's the amount of muscle that I held onto and following my next cut. Um, and you can see definitely gained some mass in arms, upper back and traps. So yeah, that is the um, theory and why high frequency training works so well. Next, we have eccentric contractions. I'm going to cover this a little bit more in the muscle damage section. Also, we can see from the evidence that body part splits, so the typical bro split of I do um, chest and arms on Monday, shoulders on Tuesday, legs on Thursday, and abs on Friday or whatever, that tends to be superior um, than over full body training. And there's a few factors in there that are more related to the metabolic stress as to why that is more effective, which again, we'll get onto. Next, we know that multi-joint movements are really helpful for accumulating mechanical tension on the muscle. Partly that's because a multi-joint movement allows you to just simply use more weight. So you can put a lot more volume through your muscles if you're doing a barbell bench press compared to lots of machine chest press, or let's say um, a deadlift compared to glute ham raise followed by hamstring curl. The multi-joint movements, because they're heavier, they allow you to recruit the higher threshold motor units, and they are the ones that have the heightened anabolic response. Simply, they also cover a large number of muscles in a short amount of time. So from an efficiency perspective, it's really useful to base your program around compound movements. Again, none of this is probably new to you. This is usually, if you're following us, the kind of thing that you're already doing in your training rather than going top to toe, training your eyebrows, then your nose, and then your mouth, and then the all 50 muscles in your neck and so on. However, we know that although the stabilization effect of multi-joint barbell movements is helpful for anabolism, deliberately seeking or like um, hunting the unstable element of training is not helpful for hypertrophy. So when you see people doing squats on a Swiss ball or something, as well as being very unsafe, it's just a, a silly idea or it's not efficient for um, hypertrophy. Finally, we know that the multi-joint movements, again, barbells, they elicit a system stress, which is different to the local stress that we'll cover in the assistance movements, so the isolation stuff that we'll be doing. So we want to base our program to maximize mechanical tension on multi-joint movements. Next, we know that the evidence suggests that your reps should be fast, concentric. And uh, so that, that means if you're doing a curl, when you're lifting the bar up, that should be as fast as possible. Again, recruiting the higher threshold motor units, which in turn, um, so the, the higher threshold motor units are basically um, the big guns that your nervous system brings out if you have to lift something heavy and fast. And then you also want to emphasize the eccentric, which is the slower, the lowering portion. You want to slow that down. Al asks, can you just quickly define volume and frequency? So good question. I should have uh, covered that. So volume is 
the total number of sets times reps times load. So as you can see on here, when this screenshot th shows 3,040 kilos of volume, that means that the person has done eight sets of 95 kilos times four. And when you multiply out sets times reps times load for that workout, it comes out to the total amount of volume. And it's just quite a good metric to use. The problem is, and I'll cover how to avoid this, is that you can kind of cheat your way into high volume if you just did a thousand reps of uh, empty barbell. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Um, the volume has to be effective volume. And by that, it has to be approaching muscular failure, not necessarily at failure, but it has to be challenging enough. And it also has to be above 65% of your one rep max in general. Intensity is defined as the percentage of your max for that number of reps. So 80% um, intensity would be, let's say 80% of your one rep max or, or of your five rep max or whatever. Frequency is just the the amount of times that you hit a muscle group or the amount of times that you train in a week. Let me know if anything's unclear as we go along, guys. So intensity, yeah. So we, as we were saying, that things should generally be over 65% of your one rep max. It doesn't, it's not a hard and fast rule. You can certainly do work that's at 50%, for example, if you're doing high reps, but the majority of your work needs to be 65 to 75% and you can veer above and below that. The data also suggests that the rep range should be mostly um, less than 15 per set. And over the week, we want to be doing 30 to 70 reps per muscle group at those kind of percentages twice a week. And also it's very important to get stronger because that will allow you to accumulate more total mechanical tension and it'll be easier to hit the volume. if. 60% of your one rep max is 30 kilos for your bench press, then it's difficult to get thousands of kilos of volume. Whereas if you bring your total, um, your max up by 50, 60 kilos, then obviously it's going to be much easier to hit that and you'll be causing more stress on your muscles and forcing them to grow bigger and stronger. So finally, we know that creatine and sodium bicarbonate um, help you with accumulating mechanical tension, both by the first from the effect on the muscles themselves and um, on the fuel sources so that you can um, push longer and, and harder and therefore accumulate more volume, but also creatine causes you to pull in intramuscular water. And that also has a mechanical effect on, uh, on your lifting and on, on your technique as well. So, so far we've covered what is hypertrophy, the the two mechanisms behind it and how one helps you to gain more, so is the seeds for the fuel source um, for you to train harder. And then the other source is the actual contractile filaments. And we've also covered how if you were to lose muscle, you can gain it back pretty easily because of some pretty fortunate mechanisms with satellite cells here. We've covered that you don't need to pick one or the other for strength or hypertrophy. And we've also covered the first element of the first big rock of gaining size, which is mechanical tension. So what's been most useful so far, hopefully that is fitting into place a little bit. And uh, we've also got some application here as well for what to do. Next, we have metabolic stress. So just before we get onto that, Stu says, sodium bicarbonate is that salt. So it's baking soda, Stu. 
Um, and what that does is it provides a lactic acid buffer, um, allowing you to, to basically train with a higher number of reps than you normally would be able to. And combined with creatine, it has a synergistic effect. So that means that the effect of sodium bicarbonate and creatine is more than either one alone, which is really cool. Tony asks, do you drink it during your workout? So no, that if, if I think if you have it during your workout, you'll probably get some gastric upset. You can, people generally get some bloating with it. Um, I would personally have five grams of creatine before you train mixed in hot water to again, minimize the gastric upset. And with the bicarbonate of soda, start with five grams, see how you tolerate it. And then you can gradually increase the, the amount if need be. The data generally shows that creatine is best around your workout generally, but doesn't have to be before or after as long as you, as long as you get it in, that's the key thing. And, uh, Brandon, you are correct. Volume, total number of sets times reps times load and then percentage of max. Cool. Next thing, metabolic stress. So this is all about signaling, hence the, the Wi-Fi signal picture there. And what happens is the metabolites. So when you break down muscle, the chemicals that, are, that, that arise from muscle damage and from a muscle being trained cause a cascade of signaling events to the rest of your body, to your endocrine system, to your nervous system, to start repairing muscle and building more for next time. So lactic acid, creatine and hydrogen ions, I'm sure you've heard of, and they are the things which burn when you're training. They're the things that contribute to a pump, to the sense of uh, acidity in your muscles as well. And they, by their nature are, those anabolic signals. There's also the hormones that are involved too, primarily insulin, which is the biggest anabolic hormone, as well as the famous ones, testosterone and growth hormone, IGF-1, and apparently interleukin-5 as well, which uh, was new to me. So all of these act as triggers for muscle growth. So they're actually quite a useful thing. So next time that you're experiencing a horrible burn and uh, hating life, then you can at least rest assured that the lactic acid is doing you some good. What they do is, first of all, they attract fluid into the muscle, and that's partly to pull in some of the osmotic, uh, to, it, it changes the osmotic potential of the cell and pulls in um, electrolytes and other glucose and fuel sources to allow you to, to allow that muscle to have some fuel. But when the cell swells, it puts the integrity of the membrane under threat because like a balloon, if you blow it up big enough, it's going to pop. What that does is then the reinforcements will come in and the muscles will have to grow larger and more robust to be able to handle the, the next beating that you give them. This effect is more of a more strongly seen in fast twitch fibers. Again, these are recruited from lifting fast and also lifting heavy. So anything over 65%. Next, we have a hypoxia. So this is the state of um, not enough oxygen getting to the muscle. And the products of that are lactic acid, growth hormone, cell swelling, and nitric oxide is involved in that as well, which attracts um, or, or it, it causes the blood vessels to expand. And you might have seen the famous supplement NO Explode, which is a nitric oxide supplement and causes this systemic vasodilation. So 
um, increase in the size of your of your veins and arteries to um, deliver more oxygen to your muscles. All of that together creates the pump. And again, this is the nutritive environment for muscle growth. What happens is, let's say you're doing a bicep curl, put your hands on your bicep and uh, and squeeze it up and see how that pressure is going to press against the veins, increasing the extracellular pressure gradient. And um, that then pushes the blood that's been going into the muscle um, or the, the, the plasma back into the muscle. So the muscle, the cells start to swell again, and then you get the pump if you do that repeatedly, which again is, is very helpful because it once again causes more threat to the cells and to the muscles, um, to, to the, uh, to causes micro damage to the muscles and threatens the cells and allows the, the rest of this repair process to take place. One way that you can accelerate this, let's say, and it's been quite, uh, it's been quite popularized by Lane Norton is occlusion training. So this is blood flow restriction. What you can see here, this guy um, has got some wraps around his arms to restrict some of the blood flow going out of his arms. So restricting the venous return that increases this buildup of metabolites and therefore the anabolic signaling causing more vasodilation. You'll find that if you, if you wrap up one arm and you start doing curls with it, it's going to get madly vascular quite quickly. Now, the evidence here is that you don't need to go too heavy if you're doing occlusion training, because this is all about building up the specific metabolites rather than um, going for the mechanical tension that we mentioned earlier. And even doing body weight exercises can be acceptable. So you, here is the one time that you can go well below that 65% intensity and work at 20 to 40% of your one rep max. Safety wise, it's a bit risky. I personally don't do occlusion training. I don't recommend my clients do it just because it's very difficult to gauge um, how tight that you should do it. And uh, some people just find it a bit freaky as well to do. We want to make sure that we are not occluding the arteries. So the based on the people in the studies, they found that um, the sensation at over seven out of 10, like, oh, that's that's seven out of 10 tight um, on the legs is just enough to occlude the veins, but not the arteries and five out of 10 on the arms. Again, approach with caution. Don't try this at home unless um, you are a nutter. Um, but that's that's another way to accelerate things. Next, so to accomplish some more of this uh, cell swelling and the rest of the cascade of metabolites that contribute to the metabolic stress that contribute to muscle growth, we can make sure that you're eating enough carbohydrates, particularly around your workout. Number one, it's the primary muscle cell fuel. Um, when you're doing sets of three or above, um, you're using the sort of phosphate creatine system when you're doing one or two reps and also insulin. So we want insulin to be as high as possible especially when, well, not all the time, but we want it to be as high as possible when you are training to deliver nutrients to your muscles and to stimulate the anabolism. We also want to be well hydrated. A cell can't swell if you just simply are a bit dehydrated, then uh, your body is gonna be putting the, the limited amount of water that you have to more important use. Next, there is some evidence to suggest that the pump is something that you can and should chase if you're looking for size gains. So nitric oxide supplements, we covered briefly. 
Um, they are often available quite cheaply now. They're quite safe. You can also increase your nitric oxide by um, sun exposure. Spinach is the natural form of that and uh, contains nitrates, which will convert into nit nitric oxide and help you to deliver some more, uh, more nutrients to your muscles. So that's something that unfortunately the amount of spinach you have to eat, if you were to try and do that as a pre-workout nitric oxide supplement would be quite sizable. Um, but it's, it's always worth eating more spinach anyway, uh, pretty satiating to keep warm. Again, if you're looking for the pump, then staying warm, wearing a hoodie or something when you're training, you don't have to be silly with it or you don't have to be absolutely drenched in sweat or anything. But as long as you're not cold in the gym, then you're going to increase the chance of blood coming to the surface of your skin and getting a nice pump there. We also know that reps, a rep range of six to 12 maximizes cell hydration. And luckily that coincides with the previous um, recommendation of the, the mechanical tension and you can do a lot with 65% above and above in the six to 12 rep range. Next, we have taking time off. Interestingly, when you take time off training, um, particularly 12 or more days, you reset your sensitivity to this anabolic signaling. The bad news is that there is something called the repeated bout effect. So if you were to train um, repeatedly for a long time, eventually your sensitivity to this anabolic signaling does start to dwindle um, just as your body adapts and it wants to be as efficient as possible. Um, from an evolutionary standpoint, it doesn't make sense for your body to just keep gaining muscle as uh, much to my disappointment. But that means that your body wants to try and conserve its resources, whereas you can trick it by taking some time off training and then coming back into it. You will be pretty sore, but um, as we've seen, muscle loss doesn't happen too quickly and um, you often regain any lost muscle a lot quicker than if you were gaining it the first time. So the takeaway point from that is don't be afraid of taking some time off training and you can build it into your lifestyle. So if you're going for a holiday or something, then it's the perfect time to relax a little bit. Obviously, as always, we want to make sure that if you are taking time off training, adjust your calories. Don't just keep eating the same amount because your expenditure has dropped and your intake might remain the same, which is always a bad combination. We also know that high volume and high reps result in acutely increased testosterone. That's a good marker. It's a good sign, but there are a lot of people and training programs that revolve around chasing these acute changes in testosterone and growth hormone. And really it's a fool's game because what matters long-term is systemically how much testosterone you have in your system. And that comes more from the big picture stuff, recovery, um, eating enough and doing all of the, all the right things with, with training and also sex frequency, apparently. So as I say, don't go chasing acute changes in testosterone, but, um, it is a good sign. Finally, for metabolic stress, know that the optimal, the Goldilocks rest period is 60 to 90 seconds. If you go, uh, so the reason that it's Goldilocks here is that if you rest too long, you miss out on some of these metabolites building up. Um, and 
you also increase the capillarization and mitochondrial density of the muscles. So the, the cell powerhouses to, um, to recover from the, the quick rest periods and adapt to being able to do more in less time. So you miss out on that if you rest for too long, but if you don't rest long enough, obviously your strength is going to be shot and you're not going to be able to accumulate enough mechanical tension. So 60 to 90 seconds seems to be just about right. Okay. Just going to dip out for a couple of questions. Brandon says this part of the lecture reminds me when I got rhabdo. Yeah. Rhabdo mustn't have been <laughs> very nice. Brandon, um, how much time do you have to take off to experience a setback in volume? I've found for me it's two weeks. So when you say setback in volume, do you mean the, your work capacity? So what often happens is that your, your work capacity drops off quite quickly. So if you take two weeks off training, then when you come back into the gym, it'll be a, a major struggle to get through a workout that you may have breezed through, um, two weeks before that comes back up very quickly. Also, you will be pretty sore as well. Brandon says, uh, can't lift as much weight. Yeah. So that again will be just being out of the groove neurally rather than, um, physical muscle loss or, or kind of sustained strength loss. Generally, if someone trains and then stops training, then the rate of detraining occurs at 15% a year, which is great news. Yeah. So, um, you said your bench press drops five pounds. That'll just be because you're out of the groove and you've, you've lost some of the, the skill, um, of bench pressing, but again, that comes back pretty quickly. Okay. So we've covered the first two rocks, mechanical tension and metabolic stress. Finally, we have muscle damage. We're almost there guys. So the theory is that, um, stretch in the muscle causes micro trauma and cell damage cell breakage in the muscle. Obviously if it gets too much, like if you run a marathon and you haven't done it before, or if you just go absolutely hell for leather on the training, then you get what Brandon got, which is rhabdomyolysis. And that's toxicity in the kidneys from too much muscle breakdown. So what happens is that yes, you are physically breaking up cells and that debris from the broken cells attracts growth factors and causes your body to come back stronger. So what we want to be doing is actually causing as much muscle damage as we can recover from, not as much as possible. And to do that, we want to make sure that we are recruiting the right fibers and training in the right way to do that. So I'm going to cover how we can do that now. First of all, mind muscle connection. Now this image is the lats. A lot of people really struggle with feeling their lats when they're training particularly things like rowing movements. It's often very hard to, um, to really get a good contraction in the lats and often, um, the arms want to take over. So the first tip, and this is, I think this is from Frank Yang is to imagine just like this picture that you are no longer you doing a set of rows. You are just a floating isolated set of lats and visualize as vividly as you can that that is the only thing contracting in you. Another good way to do it is you can use little cues. Like let's say you're doing a seated cable row. Imagine that rather than pulling from your hands, imagine that your arms are just like ropes and everything is coming from the back and from the lats. 
We can also pre-exhaust the muscle, the target muscle that we're looking to train. For example, if you are doing seated press, so seated overhead barbell press, then in between sets, you can do a couple of sets of lateral raises. We don't want it to be so heavy and so exhausting that you can no longer perform on the main movement. You can do it just enough to actually get a feel for that muscle group. So we want to target the deltoids, for example. So let's say you're doing seated press, you rack the bar, you pick up very light dumbbells, like two or three kilos, do a set of eight mid-range lateral raises just to get some blood into that muscle and to get a real feel and mind-muscle connection with it, and then go for your heavy set. And you'll certainly feel that muscle working more, especially combined with the visualization. So that is one thing that's going to really help with creating more muscle damage. Next, we want to make sure that we're staying on top of our soft tissue work. What that will do is if you have scar tissue in your muscles, then um, that's going to affect the recruitment of the fibers and also the joint tracking. And you might start compensating with some funky movement patterns. So staying on top of your soft tissue work, ironing out any kind of trigger points will help you to move more smoothly and train the muscle that you're aiming to train. Next, full range of motion. So you may have seen this on our Instagram the other day, absolutely cracked me up. Um, we know that, so the data suggests again, that if you train with a full range of motion, that is always superior um, than training with a partial range of motion. You can include partial reps as a kind of overload technique to get stronger and to ultimately improve your amount of mechanical tension that you're putting your muscles through. But for the majority of your work, you want to train a muscle through its full, safe, and obviously pain-free range of motion. We also want to be including multi-angled assistance exercises. So this exercise here is from John Meadows and they're called stretches. I have a couple of clients doing these where, so you have one foot up on a bench, for example, and you can imagine as she stretches out, she gets her head through her hands and leans forward. So the lats are really going through a full stretch and you're training them through multi angles, uh, multiple angles and um, through a full range of motion as well. Bodybuilders are really good at seeking out these movements. So definitely check out some of your favorite YouTube bodybuilders for um, some really interesting takes on traditional exercises. We also found that if you stretch the antagonists of a muscle that you're trying to train, that can often help you um, perform better and almost inhibit the ones that are holding back. So if you're training your lats, we know that if you stretch your pecs while you're doing that, so in between sets, you can actually bump out more reps. Um, and that makes sense because the pecs will antagonize the lats. Finally, failure. So training to muscular failure. This does help with muscle damage and with the metabolic stress, but it's a tool that we don't want to overuse. If you train to failure all the time, it's not only going to negatively impact the subsequent sets that you do, but you also risk psychological burnout. And with the, there's also um, evidence to show that people who consistently train to failure blunt their testosterone and risk overtraining as well. So that can be counterproductive. So really what we're seeing here is this kind of picture of training should be hard enough 
to elicit muscle growth and sometimes a bit unpleasant, but not full balls to the wall to failure every time. There is also that the, if you train to failure, you're more likely to let some of your technique go sloppy and then you're not going to be training the target muscle groups. Okay. So we have covered the big three. Finally, we have recovery and that's really one of the overarching things and it's long-term and managing your stress. If you need some help with that, check out module nine in fat loss mastery, calorie surplus. Of course, calories are permissive to muscle growth. And without that, uh, unless you are a rank beginner, then it's very difficult to gain muscle in a calorie deficit. And finally sleep. And uh, we've also got a lot of content on sleep, both in Fat Loss Mastery and also on the main website as well. Now that we have a search function after 10 years of a website, um, you can check out all of this stuff on there too. So I'm going to go back to the chat window. Just zoom in on there so you can't see the, the answers. I'm going to quiz you guys. So what are the three factors in muscle growth? While you're answering uh Brandon says, I have another question. I've moved to Texas and don't have a car. I'm riding 12 miles a day on my road bike. Should I add those calories to my diet in the same ratio as my macros are now? So you're talking about the calories that you've burned from cycling. I personally would not do that. I would, I would just continue as you're, as you're going. And then we'll see what happens to your weight over the next two weeks. And we'll be able to adjust based on that. And then we've got a bit more of a clear um, picture of how your weight's responding to that. I mean, it's not, it's not the end of the world. If you, if you'd rather just add the calories straight on now, um, just try and undershoot rather than overshoot just so that, uh, cause it's always better to, to not have gained the weight in the first place than if you'd overshot with the calories. Sometimes, um, funny story about this. I knew a guy who gained, I think about 20 kilos in two or three months. And I asked him what happened. And he said that he was bulking and that he tried and he, he, he didn't, didn't gain much muscle in the process. He just got pretty fat. And it was because on my fitness pal, he plays basketball and he searched activities on my fitness pal and saw that an hour and a half of basketball burns 4,000 calories. I'm thinking that's absolute rubbish. Like even if it's like, even if you're a Navy SEAL wearing a weighted vest playing NBA basketball, you're not going to be burning that many calories. But some guy on my fitness pal database had input that. And so he was trying to offset that by eating 6,600 calories a day. And obviously it sent his weight absolutely flying. So that's really the danger of uh, overestimating your calories. I'm sure you're not, you wouldn't do something that extreme, Brandon, but um, just an uh, interesting story there. Stu, not sure what's happened, but I seem to be uh okay went to youtube by accident cool Stu definitely need to watch this a few times yeah so it is a lot to take in but the reason i'm quizzing you is just to so it sets in your head a little bit better and also i'll give you the pdf cheat sheet download for this as well um yeah want to stay focused on powerlifting it's certainly uh it's always tempting to just embrace full bobby dilder life but um, luckily, with the assistance movements, you can still progress nicely in both. Al says mechanical stress, recovery, and something. <laughs> um, volume, stress, recovery. So close, guys. 
it's mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. So the big takeaway points from this are, if we put this all together, um, that first of all, the reps, they should be fast concentric. So the lifting portion should be as fast as possible and slow eccentric lowering portion between two and four seconds, which is really a hell of a lot of a long time. Next, we want to periodize failure. So we don't want to go to failure all the time, but we want to use it as a kind of secret weapon that we bring out during the overreaching phase of a training cycle. Programming wise, I'll let you check this out in your own time on the, the PDF, but this looks at all of the studies that compare um, the various factors and the effects in programming. The crux of it is 30 to 70 reps per muscle group twice a week. Body part split is generally superior for pure hypertrophy. Um, so something like this, where really you're hitting your muscle groups two or three times in a week, because if you're training your back, you would also be training your biceps, just even if you're doing all the mind muscle connection stuff. And if you're training your shoulders, then you'll also be doing your triceps, for example. So that still works out with this rule here. High frequency body weight work, that's something that we can add in if needed. So lots of extra press ups and pull ups and um, body weight stuff, if you're recovering from it, is a great way to really put the turbo boost on your progress. And finally, we know that linear periodization is slightly better for size gains than something like daily undulating periodization, which is the thing that's in vogue with powerlifters at the minute, um, where you would be training multiple training attributes at the same time together during the week. Um, whereas linear periodization, you'd be doing say four weeks of four sets of 15, another four weeks of four sets of 10, and the next four weeks would be four sets of eight, for example, and then reset. So that's programming. Supplements, we want to have one to two liters of water um, around your workout, and then make sure that fits in with your general recommendation for how much water you should be drinking throughout the day. And that's, you can get your results for that in the calculator, propanefitness.com forward slash calculator. Um, but if you're one of our clients, then you'll already have your targets. 30 to 80 grams of carbohydrates around training. Again, this is dependent on what your total calorie targets are, but try and reserve a good chunk of your carbs for around training. And don't worry about going for complex carbs. They can be as simple as you like. Next, creatine and bicarbonate of soda. Um, they are the the two sort of most effective ones and, and also very cheap. One or the other may give you gastric upset, um, bloating and burping and farting and things. So um, if you do find that you struggle with that, then obviously taper down the dose a little bit. The next two, beta alanine and nitric oxide supplements, less important. I personally don't take beta alanine. Um, I, I'm just trying out a nitric oxide supplement at the minute just because, uh, just for YOLO, but um, it's really not top on the list. And also with your exercises, hit a muscle group from multiple angles to make sure that um, you're, you're creating as much muscle damage as possible. Something that's really interesting, at least for me, is that not all of your muscles have fibers that run from the origin all the way to the insertion. There are some muscles like the sartorius, for example, which you can is kind of on the inner thigh, um, that has multiple cross fibers 
that only stretch part of the way along the muscle. And that suggests that if you're training your back, then you can actually hit different parts of the muscle by training in multiple angles and multiple planes. And it also keeps things interesting. Finally, full range of motion with your movements. So no partial squats here. Interesting point on adherence here as well. Now this graph looks at the comparison of, um, and this is a strength comparison, but we can see that the people who were really consistent with their training weren't that much different in their results. In fact, weren't significantly different than the ones who were not, uh, who were much lower attendance, even down to 60%. So what that suggests is that you don't need to be 100% consistent with your training. Missing the odd session isn't going to be the end of the world. <clears throat> the most important thing is hitting your total volume. Now, there's some further reading here as well. Don't worry if there's anything on here that you missed or you want me to go over again, you'll get the recording and you'll also see the PDF summary of this as well. Anyway, so if this has piqued your interest, first two things to check out are, number one, what happens when you stop training? That's a two-part article on the website. Um, the link is in the PDF. And also, can you gain strength in a calorie deficit? And uh, so a lot of this is about physiology, but it's also about mindset. So do check that out and you'll see what is what the key factor is with our clients that just consistently gain strength in a calorie deficit and make the best results. And it's a really common thread between the most successful clients. Creatine, um, you've seen my um, post on creatine. In fact, it's just propanefitness.com forward slash creatine. We also have what is muscle, a link to that as well. And also some guys to check out who are the pioneers, the, uh, the, the big researchers in hypertrophy are Borge Fagoli, Brad Schoenfeld, Eric Helms, and Lyle McDonald. Okay, guys. So that is it. Thank you for bearing with me. I hope I've not put too many of you to sleep. I'll just go through a couple more questions. Um, any tips for avoiding mumbo jumbo on the internet with this stuff? So Al, I hope that, uh, I don't, that I'm not included in that mumbo jumbo. I, I tried to make it as, um, well, as, as non-technical as possible, or at least to, to explain some of the terms, but, um, I realized I skimmed over things like volume and intensity, um, tips for avoiding it. It's difficult because there's a lot of people in the industry that will either try and deliberately obfuscate by, um, throwing around terms that they don't really understand. Or I, I even I saw someone the other day, I'm not going to mention any names, but they wrote, um, I am an acetylcholine dominant person. And therefore I respond best to variety. Now, biologically, that's absolute bollocks. But to the layman, you can say something like that. And it just it sounds sciencey. And you think, Oh, well, okay, I've got to believe this guy. Um, so there's a lot of that. Examine.com is a great resource, more for supplements, but that's very evidence-based. And um, 3DMJ um, are another evidence-based uh, bunch, apart from us, obviously. Um, Stu really got on with DUP. Yeah, it's it's great for strength, Stu, and you can still accumulate a lot of volume. I'm not saying it's bad for hypertrophy, it's just that linear periodization seems to be slightly superior. Stu. Is it okay to mix creatine with BCAAs? Should I put bicarbonate in with it? Yeah, you can, if your stomach can take it. Um, so mix in the creatine with warm, but not boiling water. 
and uh, then it should dissolve a little bit better. Brandon, great lecture. Thanks, Yusuf. No worries. Al, I just mean unsubstantiated rubbish. <laughs> um, yeah, so it wasn't Charles Poliquin, but uh, I have no comment on, on his stuff. <laughs> cool. Guys, I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I hope it was helpful and there were some useful takeaway points. Um, I'm going to send you around the PDF for uh, all of the main points there as well. Cool. Tony, Stu, Joe, Chris, Al, and Brandon, thanks for coming on. Speak to you all soon.